Hey everyone, welcome to the Next Year Amigos podcast. We're here with Oliver Sarter from Tulane today, and we're kicking off our Your Amigos Legends uh, series number two. We did one a while back with Larry Einhorn and others, and we're going to do some uh, again now. Oliver, um, thanks for joining us. Why don't you just give us a uh, brief introduction of yourself to sort of where you are now, and then we'll dive in with some questions. Sure. So, you know, medical oncology, started focusing on prostate cancer actually in 1990, and you know, kind of stuck with it over the years. Um, I've done a little broader GU, but prostate is really the passion. And, um, you know, I just keep trying to make a difference in the lives of patients. That's really what drives me. Uh, you see patients in the clinic every day and they need your help. And a lot of times the help they need is larger than what we have the capacity for today. So we need to generate new capacity, new ideas. And uh, that's the part I really love is trying to take on something difficult and hopefully work toward a solution. So take us, take us back. You said you got into prostate cancer in 1990. Maybe take us back just sort of, I don't know, out of fellowship, early faculty. How did you get into prostate? Why that? Not something else. What were your sort of first first big breaks that got you in there? Yeah, you know, a, a, a little bit of happenstance, actually. I was at the National Cancer Institute. Uh, I'd done a medical oncology fellowship there. And, and um, you know, I gravitated towards solid tumors, but, you know, not anything in particular. And... Um, I'd actually really enjoyed being in the laboratory and I started uh, some extra laboratory work, working on things like fin and figure, which were sarcolated kinases. And I thought that was cool and maybe important, who knew? And um, all of a sudden, kind of out of the blue, I was, you know, literally working in type of a a postdoc position. And I got a call from Snuffy Myers. I don't know if you remember Snuffy. (laughs) Um, Snuffy. It sounds like he. But you was, flew uh, fighter pilots in the war. <laughs> uh, Snuffy was unusual then, and he's uh, still unusual so far as I know. Uh, a little bit of creative guy, but he was working on prostate, and he said, um, Oliver, we'd like you to join our prostate cancer team and be a little bump up for me and be kind of, you know, they, they, they had some fancy title, but it was actually like, you know, jun- junior professor, or jun- junior associate, whatever, and um, says, we, we want you to work on prostate cancer. And I still remember my remark. I said, well, I don't really know anything about prostate cancer. And his (laughs) response was, don't worry, you'll learn. That hasn't stopped Tom over the years. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, don't worry, you'll learn. And so (laughs) anyway, I sort of gravitated toward that position. And that was actually 1990. Uh, I started to work on prostate cancer. Um, Oliver, do you see that? What what drove Snuffy to phone you uh, other than he had your telephone number? Do you think that, do you think he phoned you because you had a, a, a good personal relationship with him or do you think he'd heard about you? What, what The important decisions, the important crossroads in your career in oncology, were they driven by circumstance or by relationships? You know, relationships and circumstance both made a difference. So go back in time a little bit. I had worked at Tulane with, with a guy named Cy Bowers, who is the chief of endocrinology, and he was a uh, a really uh, great guy, an intellect, uh, a guy who focused on hypothalamic pituitary interactions, <clears throat> who was part of the uh, Nobel Prize winning team that Andrew Shelley had put together. Um, and so I had all this sort of background in endocrinology. And I think that may have been attractive to Snuffy because I kind of knew a little bit about endocrine, perhaps more than others. And then, you know, I, I worked in the lab and I had an interest in translational medicine. 
And I think Steffi was sort of interested because I had a, this sort of hormonal background, a little translational medicine. You know, I've been a fellow there at the NCI, and um, I, I'm not quite sure why he plucked me out of the mix. There were like 16 fellows, I suppose, he could have picked on, but uh, he picked on me. So um, I, I went over and started, you know, started to work, started to learn. Hello, what do you feel now about preclinical work? You know, we have people who are doing PhDs and some do cell line work. I think these days more do bioinformatics as much as cell line work. Um, how useful is that now in medic? It's still required in the UK, for example, to have a PhD. How important is it to have that background that you achieved and so many of your peers have done, but relatively few of the current generation have done? You know, I've really found it to be valuable to understand the science behind the concepts because, you know, everything starts with an idea. You know, if you go to PSMA, which is, you know, one of the hot topics today, you know, that had to be isolated. I mean, prostate-specific membrane antigen, you know, it was developed, it was found, it was, it was isolated. And that basic work often doesn't get enough credit. Uh, people have to have chemists, you have to have uh, really good analytics, microbiology, you know, today bioinformatics to be able to decipher all of these alterations. Uh, I believe it's been very helpful in my career to have a strong scientific base. And uh, I did spend three full years in the laboratory, actually, probably more than more than most. And that didn't count the part that I did earlier in medical school. So, you know, I think in the end, it, if I'd told it up, I would have had four, four and a half years of kind of really laboratory experience before taking off on the clinical career. Um, I think it helped me. Uh, my father thought I was slow. My, my brother went through medical school. <laughs> my father thinks I'm slow, too. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. My brother went through medical school in three years. It took me five. So, you know, I was like, I'm totally up there, guy. You yeah. have trouble with the classes. My, my brother's more talented than me as well. It's really annoying. <laughs> Oliver, did you, did you think about a, a career as a lab investigator, sort of an R1 pursuing lab investigator? What, what pivoted you to, to be more of a clinical investigator? Yeah, you know, you know, good question. And, and you know, I might have been going that way. And uh, I really did enjoy, I, I love the discovery aspects of the laboratory. You know, you, you can actually figure things out right there on the run. But, you know, it was actually a, sort of a pivotal moment, and this is a crazy pivotal moment. But, you know, I, I kept my hands in the clinic. Uh, I was working with a guy that I got to know pretty well as a federal judge down in Louisiana. And, um, oh, Lord, his, uh, his cancer was bad, you know. PSA of a thousand and rising rapidly and everything was was kind of going to hell and we treated him with sermon and a variety of other crazy things and nothing was working and then you know we realized that that he had actually been on flutamide for a long 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 time and of course he'd been on that because we thought at the time that maybe being on flutamide was a good thing to do that was an old antigen receptor uh, antagonist for those who may not be aware and um I'd had a happenstance where I'd stopped the flutamide earlier on a patient and he seemed to be getting better. And so I stopped his flutamide and uh, it was rather incredible and, you know, extraordinary what happened next. His PSA went from a thousand to zero and stayed oh. there for the next like 12 years. And that <laughs> incredible impact of like turning someone's life around to me was a little bit addicting. And it's just like, oh my God, you know, you can do, you can discover things in the clinic and you can really make a difference. And it makes a difference in patients' lives. And I think that was a 
singular event that got me oriented more toward clinical medicine than pursuing the basic laboratory. It's probably the best anti-androgen withdrawal response you've ever seen is my guess. It was, absolutely <laughs> the best I'd ever seen, the best. But, but actually there was something sort of weird, I'll just insert this for a second. You know, it turned out that Suramin uh, actually was an adrenalytic. And so you ended up kind of taking out the adrenal glands. And of course, everybody was, was medically or surgically castrated. And there just wasn't another source of androgens other than potentially the androgens synthesized by the tumor cells themselves, as now has been shown. But that anti-androgen withdrawal response was absolutely incredible. And uh, it was like, wow, what the hell is this? And it got me sort of, you know, motivated thinking, what is going on here? This is crazy. It probably hadn't really been described yet, or maybe it was no, just... No, 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 it did a, not. It, yeah. it, it turned out, and it go way, way back, there were actually like three different independent observations mm-hmm. that all came out. Um, we we uh, published ours in, I think, Journal of National Cancer Institute, and uh, Howard Shear's group uh, had an independent publication, and one of the groups from Canada had an independent uh, publication. And so there were three kind of independent activities but you know when i first observed it i didn't know that anybody else was watching it too right oliver how did you develop a prominent role in the u.s there's a lot of competition in the u.s there's a lot of prostate cancer doctors um there are a lot of people doing what you do um how, what why, why have you been successful or more successful in the, the most in obviously you're part of our legend series so you can tell you that as a kind of a given um <laughs> how how uh how have, how is this success? How have you managed to, to do this this successfully? And and how do you measure your own sort of success? Do you look at things and do you have yearly objectives? Or um, so two questions. Number one is: Was there a moment or a paper or a piece of work that 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 changed, or was it just a gradual, slowly knocking away at the wall? Um, number one and number two is: How do you measure your success now? Yeah, you know, you know, great, great questions. And, um, you know, I, um, I'll, I'll take the first part and then the second part. So, you know, I think the thing that, that helped maybe to transform me a little bit um, was, was uh, uh, again, a bit of a strange interaction. It started with a guy named Bill Geckler. Uh, Bill, Bill Geckler was a nuclear chemist. Uh, Bill Geckler had worked um, in the reactor uh, up at University of Missouri and had created, had the patent on a compound called Samarium 153 EDTMP. And, and, I, and I met Bill in a, in a happenstance way and then started to work on Samarium. And, uh, and believe it or not, you could have a palpable difference in the lives of patients by doing that. And it, it turned into a regulatory approval, uh, an FDA approval. And uh, there were two pivotal papers associated with Samarium. I was uh, the first author on one. Um, that sounds a little bit obscure, but the idea that one could potentially change practice and your ideas could be translated into something that the FDA would improve was a little bit addicting. And I, 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 I tried to kind of up my own bar and, and try to say, well, that's really what I aim to do. I really want to change the way we practice medicine and to be involved with these 
sort of trials and concepts that are going to get to an FDA approval, and then we're going to disseminate those findings across the United States and hopefully on a larger platform, even globally. And so that Samarium experience really helped to get me motivated. And and, and the next one um, that I started to become involved with was uh, Radium-223. And again, it was the same thing, you know, kind of got, got in a little bit early in part because of my Samarium experience. And that um, ended up turning out well and almost sort of quite not quite simultaneously, the FDA approval came sooner, got involved with Cabaz and Taxel. And um, that was a phase three that was filled for FDA approval. And uh, that's my first experience working with Johan de Bono, who's absolutely fantastic, as you know, he's utterly amazing. And um, Johan was the first author on on that phase three with Cabaz and Taxel, I was the last author. With Radium, it was Chris Parker, uh, also at the Royal Marsden, and I was senior author on that New England Journal. And, you know, so some of the goals that I have today is, you know, if I can, to, to be involved with the pivotal trials that lead to FDA approval. Uh, I must admit that I, I do have a, a, a favorite journal that's called the New England Journal, and I, I strive for that one. Um, I, I actually... I so kinda, does Tommy, doesn't make it very often, but it's, it's, he strives for it. A little yeah. bit more than Brian, but there we go. Now, now no, Oliver... We strive, my, we work, you know, my those next, are our goals. My, my next question um, is around um, the balance between investigator-initiated work and company-sponsored randomized phase threes. Um, Investigator-initiated work is... It's more difficult to do. It, it's, well, as you say, it's your own idea. You take it through. It's either through a cooperative group or it's a smaller study. Uh, it tends to be a larger project. And then, of course, the company randomized phase three. So there are different components of that. Sometimes it's your idea and you go to the company and you talk them into doing it. Other times the company comes to you and says, we've got this big randomized phase three. Would you like to be involved? Indeed, would you like to be on the steering committee? How do you assess your success in the context of the different benchmarks ranging from investigating the shared trial all the way to being invited to the steering committee? Is it all the same to you or do you benchmark it differently? You know, they're, they're, they're both valuable, Tom, a great, great question, because, you know, the, the idea is always start, you know, in a, in a small way. And then you have to bring them into reality. And that's often that investigator-initiated concept. And you have to talk somebody into the funding and kind of get it going. Um, that brings its own challenges. But, you know, it's, it's interesting that if you, if you want to have the big impact, it actually takes a big budget. And I have no trouble working with companies. And I, I really am not really very pleased if companies bring the idea to me on a silver platter because that's not what I like to do. I like to influence a company to be able to create the silver platter together. And, you know, sometimes that can be a little bit difficult. Sometimes companies are not always as susceptible to, uh, I'll just simply call it reason as I would prefer. Uh, others may disagree with the word reason, uh, but, but that said, you know, I, I think it takes both. You know, if you if you if you're only in the in the investigator initiated, you, you're never going to get that big phase three done. If you're only in the phase three and you never do anything else, then you're not going to be initiating the concepts because typically those are a little bit ripe for the plucking, and then you have to shape it properly. Um, but there's a lot of art in the design of phase threes, and 
uh, that's at times what I think uh, the investigators, you know, like you and like Brian, you know, can really add value because we understand the clinical perspective. We understand the patient perspective and we understand how clinical trials get done. And I think that's very valuable to bring to the company. Well, if you were, if you were um, giving advice to a younger you, you know, or junior faculty these days, somebody wants to be, you know, a clinical translational investigator like yourself, give us your sort of top three, say somebody just starting junior faculty interested in GU prostate cancer. I mean, what are the, the really key things? You know, there's a lot of things I'm sure, but what are the really key pieces of advice or, or, you know, items to put in place to, to foster that success? Um, number one, have fun. You know, I don't think any of us are ever going to be good at anything we don't enjoy. And so finding that element of enjoyment and having a little bit of fun is absolutely essential, I think, for success because it, it really becomes a labor of love instead of just a labor. So uh, enjoy what you do and, and make, make sure that that's part of it. Second of all, I really, I really think that so much of what we achieve is due to those that we surround ourselves with as we go through. And, you know, being able to work with, I always try to work with, with people smarter than myself. And, you know, I, I, I try to work with the people that I think are the best in the field because I value so much their advice and their criticism and their comments. So work with good people, do what you love. And the third thing is, you got to focus. And if you don't have a focus, it's just not going to work. You know, you can't be all over the map. You can't, you can't be um, trying to cure melanoma one day and then move, move on to, uh, to, or maybe you can move on to bladder. Maybe you can, you know, in the immunotherapy world, maybe you can do that, but you typically need to just, you know, you need to focus as well. You, think you wouldn't be welcome in bladder, Oliver. You wouldn't be welcome. <laughs> well, I was we, don't, ask, we don't. We don't need people like you. I was going to ask. Um, I mean, we could you because you could be an immunotherapist per se, right, and cut across diseases. Yeah. But you still think having a disease focus, you know, even nowadays where drugs cut across diseases is is important. Is that right? Yeah, I actually do, and that's that's because of the extremely valuable information that you have about the landscape. Uh, the natural history, the clinical trial designs, and also understanding the depth of the 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 com the, com the competition and what's going on. So I, mean, I actually think a disease focus is is pretty important. Mm -hmm. Oliver, I'm keen you don't tiptoe your way around this question. Uh, so, what is the future of the cooperative groups in the U.S. and are they working well at the moment? And if not, why not? Yeah, you, you know, I think the cooperative groups are essential, but they're um, they're endangered for several reasons. Number one is their their funding is not really adequate. Uh, number two, uh, they're too slow. Uh, they 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 need to be more nimble and and better funded. And number number three, I, I think, and I just have lived through this very recently. Um, you know, you're dependent on the molecules that are typically supplied by a sponsor. And uh, the, the sponsors typically want to take the best ideas for themselves. Uh, and, 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 and that just uh, very poignantly happened um, in this past year. But what I'll say is that um, they should be better funded and more nimble to be more relevant. And I do have a concern about the cooperative groups. They're, they're a, a great mechanism 
um, particularly like in radiation oncology. And I'm actually part of the NRG. Uh, I'm the medical oncology chair in the GU committee at NRG, led by Felix Fang, by the way, who's fantastic. Um, that being said, um, I, I, I worry about the cooperative groups in their future. Oliver, I have one last question. Then I, I forgot to warn you, we have a speed round at the end of these where we ask other questions. Tom, you might want to line yours up. Get, tell us, look, sort of looking back on your career, it, what are the top three things if you said, boy, I'm most proud of X, Y, and Z, you know, in terms of a, a clinical research accomplishment, what would those be? Yeah, you know, I, I think it, it's very broadly in the field of radiopharmaceuticals, which I got into early. And I would say, actually, the, the thing I'm most proud of is the PSMA uh, 617 Letitia 177. I think the radium um, is right up there. And believe it or not, I think samarium was right up there, the samarium 153. It was a palliative product, but it demonstrated the potential of radio pharmaceuticals and I think helped to get the ball rolling. And I think we're going to look forward and have a huge impact on radio pharmaceuticals and prostate cancers we go forth. And that's really, to me, the achievement I'm most proud of. Tom, you have any more questions before our speed round? Yeah, I've got two questions, Oliver. Um, the first is, I'd like to know, um, there's this doublet triplet issue that's going on, and it's creating quite a lot of controversy, um, and particularly the control arms creating a lot of controversy. So there are people who think there's a survival benefit, and it should be a standard of care, particularly for the high-risk patients. And then there's a second group of people who said, well, you know, Abby is the control arm. It wasn't tested against Abby. And actually, I'm not giving chemotherapy to anyone up front. And, and so um, the, the thought of adding Abby in, that's not really what I do anyway. So it's not relevant to my practice. Where do you sit with this? You know, I'm um, actually sort of a believer in the novel hormones more than the chemotherapy. Um, you know, I have uh, a belief that the lack of the control arm containing abiraterone and, and PS1 or uh, if you want to go darolutamide in, in the Aerosense trial, because again, that's, you know, the two triplets for PS1 and Aerosense. You know, I, I think that it remains unproven that the triplet is better than a good doublet, uh, because we know that abiraterone will add to ADT docetaxel, but I don't know if docetaxel is going to add to ADT abiraterone. So, um, you know, I, I don't hesitate to, to use it in a high volume young patient, but I don't feel convinced it should be the standard of care. Interesting. Yes. It's my last question on prostate cancer. There's also a lot of controversy about the biomarker with PARP inhibitors. And it seems to be an area, again, where we're not able to get consensus. And we've got two trials, which I do think slow show slightly different results. I know their trial designs are very different. Um, what's your take on the role of PARP inhibition and the role of the biomarker currently with the data we have? Yeah, you know, I, I think the biomarkers are driven too broadly. Um, if, if you look at the Olaparib approval, it included a series of biomarkers, some of which were not very well studied. I don't think there's any question about uh, BRCA2 and likely BRCA1 and probably PALB2, but I think uh, ATM to me is very controversial. I think uh, CHECK2 is, is uh, controversial at best. I think CDK12 is probably not particularly active for the PROP inhibitors. So I think the broad amalgamous recombination repair 
uh, mutation pattern is not ideal. And we really ought to be doing gene by gene analysis, but we don't have uh, good data for those rare genes. That's the problem in my mind. Yeah. All right, Tom, you ready for the speed round? I'm good to go, Brian. Do you want me to go first or do you want to go? Um, I'll go. All right. I'm sorry. I forgot to warn you about this before we okay. started. Tell us your yeah. favorite. These are just silly questions. Tell us your, the favorite place you've ever given a talk. Oh, um, Cape Town, South Africa. Mm, good one. Um, ASCO or ASCO GU? ASCO is the big stage. Favorite New Orleans cuisine? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, for my birthday this year, I went to Clancy's. Got to be my favorite. But how am I going to turn down Galatoire's and Commander's Palace? Can't do it. Oh, my God. They're so good. <laughs> okay, top three then. Bruce Springsteen or Elton John? Elton John. Ooh, interesting. I'll stay on the music theme. Favorite concert you've ever been to? You know, Grateful Dead. Many, many. It's <laughs> not very years grateful. Ago. We don't I need don't details. Very much. No details. <laughs> um, and Oliver, what's your the favorite your favorite paper you've written? Oh, you know, I think the one I enjoy the most is uh, is the PSMA six one seven edition. You know, it's um, it's a big impact paper. And uh, of course, it just came out, but I think that's my very favorite. Last one for me. What if you could accomplish one more thing in your career? Could be anything. Could be a paper. Could be a trial. Could be whatever you want. One one more thing that you need to accomplish before you retire. Gosh, I want to do it again. <laughs> uh, you know, I want to do it again. Okay, I've been. Uh, I, I like I like these FDA approvals. I like the New England Journal. I want to do it again. It's addicting. Oliver, it my last question is around mentorship. And um, what's the, um, what's, what's your, um, for those individuals at the moment who have a role in mentorship, what's the best way of bringing talented people along? You know, I think the best way is to create these longer term relationships. Mentorship is not about a, a clinic or two. It's, it's, it's about uh, the melding of careers and melding of goals. And the people that I mentor best are the ones that uh, I form these long-term relationships with. And I still keep with them, even though they're not with me today. I still keep with them and want to support their work. It's fantastic. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks for, uh, congratulations on all your accomplishments. Thanks for spending a little time with us. I really enjoyed it, Oliver. Thank you. Thank you, guys. My pleasure. Cheers, really. My pleasure to be here. Thank you very all much. All right. Take Bye. care.